Empowered podcast. As you can hear, a lot has been going on in our world. I'm sure a lot has been going on in yours as well. I wanted to come to you today with a very special episode. Today's episode is being brought to you by the Interpersonal Podcast, where I was honored recently to be a special guest for the special interest group of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, ABCT. And this was their child maltreatment and interpersonal violence special interest group. So just hang tight. We'll have about a quick 30 minute conversation that you can listen to today. And we will be back in the coming weeks with episode two of Black and Empowered. My call and my charge as a researcher, but also as a clinician and as someone who trains clinicians is to think about ourselves as advocates and to think about the ways that we can allow our Black clients to see that, right, there are no deficits within them as someone who's trying to navigate society, but that society is the one that has these barriers. Hi everyone, welcome to episode two of Interpersonal. This is Hannah, my pronouns are she and her. And Aggie, my pronouns are she and her. The Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies is an international organization. It's composed of researchers, psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, social workers, marriage and family therapists, nurses, and other mental health practitioners and students. Within ABCT, there are special interest groups. That's where ABCT members can gather and connect. They're called SIGs for short. We're two student representatives for the Child Maltreatment and Interpersonal Violence, or CMIV, SIG. Every year, the CMIV SIG has an annual meeting with a keynote speaker and opportunities for us to connect. This year, surprise, 2020, it was virtual. Being virtual is making the best of a bad situation. But one of the really exciting things about the meeting being virtual this year was that we got to record the keynote speaker and we get to share the highlights of it with all of you. We were so grateful for our keynote speaker to be Dr. Aisha Metzger, an assistant professor at the University of Georgia and visiting research faculty at Yale University. She also leads the Empower Lab. Without further ado, let's jump into her talk. You can follow along with some of her resources in the show notes. Today, I'll be talking about healing interpersonal and racial trauma, ways that we can integrate racial socialization into cognitive behavioral therapy for African-American youth. I'm going to attempt to do what I do over the course of a semester in about 20 to 30 minutes for this. So use some of my cognitive flexibility to shorten. I do want to spend some time talking about specific strategies for integrating racial socialization into CBT. As it pertains to you guys as practitioners, whether or not you were dealing with trauma-exposed populations, so if you're dealing with kiddos who are dealing with anxiety, ADHD, depression, any sort of outcome that you're helping your kiddos with, it is important to know that 60% of youth are going to experience some sort of interpersonal trauma or interpersonal stressor that could be potentially traumatic. Um, and that 15% of these youth are experiencing more than six stressful events. So um, especially right now, as it's 
coronavirus and people are staying at home. Parents are dealing with homeschooling, job instability, um, domestic violence. These are all stressors that youth are also um, being exposed to. So really just keeping in mind as practitioners, um, the relevance of interpersonal stress and possibly trauma within any clients that you are interacting with. Specific to Black clients, it is important also to be aware of racial stress, as it can be potentially traumatic for Black youth who experience or encounter these racial stressors. So racial stressors are dangerous or frightening race-based experiences um, that overwhelm one's coping capacity and impacts one's quality of life. So what does this mean and what does this look like? So similar to being aware that all youth are experiencing stressors, it is important to be aware of the fact that youth as young as eight, if they're Black, are saying that they are experiencing, on average, five daily experiences with racial stressors. Um, 90%, so almost all Black youth right now are saying that within the course of a week, right, I'm experiencing some sort of racial stressor that, again, can be individual. It can be a collective experience. We'll talk very briefly about vicarious experiences experiences with racial stressors. So those that you witness, whether that be on the news or on social media, right? And again, important to consider is that although these stressors are not traumatic for all individuals, we will see moving forward that certainly the outcomes and some of the symptoms of racial trauma um, can be evident um, amongst African-American youth who you are encountering, whether or not they're presenting with racial trauma. So this slide does have a trigger warning. Just to keep in mind, different instances of racial stressors and how they are impacting, again, if you think about the previous slide, um, almost all of your Black clients in one way or the other. Um, so first being corporal punishment, I usually pause here and say, who all knows what this means? And you'll, you'll get various responses from the audience, but this is a Black mom. And when you see the one, the two, and the three, following a command, this usually means that if you're not responding to that command by the time that parent gets to three, right, that corporal punishment, spanking, a whooping, whatever it is that the parent describes it as, but this form of discipline um, is something that usually um, follows this command. So as clinicians, just being really aware of corporal punishment, being really aware of cultural practices that these families are engaging in, one, so that you know how to engage with them in treatment, and two, so that you're aware of any mistrust that they might have for you as a practitioner. So talking about limits of confidentiality, talking about your, your responsibility as a mandated reporter and how you see yourself working within the system. Again, thinking about microaggressions and how they might impact African-American individuals within the therapy space and without. So um, it's important to consider how we as therapists might microaggress against our clients, but also to think about tools that we can give our clients for responding to microaggressions in the moment. So we do know that when we experience any form of stressors, um, our, our body's innate responses are fight, flight, or freeze. So how do we normalize those responses for clients to say that flight might look like avoidance and you not wanting to participate in extracurricular activities with your classmates, for example, after instances of individual um, racism? It might look like freezing in the moment and not knowing how to respond right? It might look like fighting in the moment and becoming combative or advocating. So how do we normalize these instances and prepare our clients for dealing with them? 
I spoke very briefly about individual racism, but these are instances that take place in our day-to-day life that now as we're thinking about social media and the way that these individual instances can become vicarious, our clients are being exposed to them indirectly. So on social media and in the news as well. And really keeping in mind that when we are dealing with our clients on interpersonal stressors, again, on any maladaptive outcomes that they are also contending with these racial stressors that again are in the media, but as you see here, they're in their day-to-day environment. So in Confederate statues and Confederate flags, for example, your clients are going to say that these are stressors that lead to maladaptive outcomes like anger, like aggression, right? Like sadness, like hopelessness, like why did it take 300 days for any justice to come, right? What does that look like when our clients are dealing with instances of sadness and hopelessness and saying, right, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to engage civically, right? There's no hope based on the structures and the systems that I'm involved in. So really, again, don't want to beat a dead horse here, but thinking about the different instances of racial stressors that Black clients, Black youth, Black caregivers are likely to encounter and how we as clinicians um, are able to normalize, validate, but also help them cope with and contend with these stressors. One of the things that we do as clinicians, we'll talk about psychoeducation um, here briefly, but in terms of an introduction to racial stress and racial trauma, we're hopefully all familiar with PTSD. The literature right now, us researchers who are involved in doing racial trauma work, we fought really hard for the DSM-5. It's not in there yet, but it's coming. Um, But really just being able to think about racial stress and the spectrum to Uh, racial trauma and how that can emerge within African-Americans. So thinking about being exposed to a racial stressor, whether that be directly or um, vicariously as a criterion A event that does result in these maladaptive outcomes that are similar, very similar to PTSD. So we do see re-experiencing in the form of recurrent distressing memories, or reporting discrimination in higher numbers. We also see irritability. I talked about aggression, hypervigilance, right? So being on on guard or alert or on the lookout for racism that you might encounter. Irritability and aggression, your clients are gonna tell you, right? Like I'm on Instagram every morning, on Facebook, arguing with people in the comment section. I'm arguing with clerks at stores who are treating me like I'm suspicious for some reason, right? So this exaggerated response that we see two racial stressors in some clients does meet clinical um, significance to where they can show signs of racial trauma. This also looks like reduced interest. Young Black clients who say, I'm not engaging in any extracurricular activities because my classmates leave me out or they don't know how to talk to me, they're microaggressing against me. Caregivers who are saying, I'm not coming up to the school because I've had negative experiences with administrators at the school, being detached, having loss of pleasure. So these are, right, clients who otherwise will think, oh, I'm antisocial, I'm not getting along with people. If you are pathologizing their response to a racial stressor, so how do we as clinicians say, you know what, you're not wrong to be detached, right? You're not crazy for feeling hopeless in in spite of or in the face of these racial stressors that you are experiencing. So again, this uh, behavioral response, that looks like avoidance, right? Avoiding these thoughts, avoiding these conversations. Unplugging that we do to save our mental health could be potentially traumatic if it does result in us missing out on these um, other 
potentially enriching experiences. Overall, just keeping in mind, right, that Black clients are more likely to experience these traumas, whether that be interpersonal, but certainly um, these racial traumas, and to suffer from the, the mental health and behavioral consequences like PTSD, depression, anger, sadness, hopelessness, but also maladaptive behavioral consequences um, that come from feeling angry. So those are things like delinquency and aggression, right? Substance use, risky sex. That in combination lead to, right, these maladaptive outcomes. So even in knowing that we have treatments that are available, they're less likely to initiate them, to complete them, and to benefit from them. So our, my, my call and my charge as a researcher, but also as a clinician and as someone who trains clinicians, is to think about ourselves as advocates and to think about the ways that we can allow our Black clients to see that, right, there are no deficits within them as someone who's trying to navigate society, but that society is the one that has these barriers that are in place. And to think of ourselves as advocates to help them navigate one, identify, and two, navigate these barriers as they're presented. Um, so I do this in my research in three different ways. Like I said, I'm not going to talk uh, very much about them, but I will provide resources for you moving forward. So understanding within group differences in culturally relevant risk and resilience factors. So the risk factor that I'm most interested in as it pertains to Black youth is racial stress. The resilience factor that I'm most interested in that, according to the literature, shows the most benefit for Black youth is racial socialization. So we're going to talk a little bit today about that process and what it looks like for Black youth. Um, also, as we know, right, services exist within society that are designed to protect youth against stressors that they encounter. Uh, so another pillar of my research is evaluating the services that exist and figuring out why are Black youth and ethnic minority youth less likely to engage in them and what can we do to facilitate their engagement and their utilization of these services. And then last, right, how do we adapt these evidence-based treatments and services that are designed for the general population to be culturally specific and relevant so that Black youth can benefit from these services. I want to talk to you about racial socialization as it is the evidence-based process through which adults transmit the behaviors, perceptions, and values of their ethnic group. And right, so socialization in general is how we rear our children to survive in society. So for example, we have socialization around safety. Don't touch the stove, it's hot. Don't put your finger in an electric socket, you can get shocked, right? Crossing the street, you learn the laws, you look both ways. Red means the cars are going to stop, so you could probably walk, right? So these are how we socialize our children to navigate in society. Racial socialization is the exact same process. You're socializing your children for the rules of society. You're teaching them about the values of your cultural group so that they can navigate these potential pitfalls, right? You get pulled over by the police. What do you do? You put your hands at 10 and 2. You say, yes, sir. No officer, right? I'm reaching. I'm moving. You talk to your children. You model for them ways that they can navigate society as, as an African-American or as a Black youth. So I just talked about um, conversations that caregivers have. So that can happen orally, but it can also happen by modeling, right? So I get pulled over. You're in the backseat. You can watch my interactions. We can go to Black history museums. We can cook African-American meals together. We can role play instances. If you're in class and someone calls you the N-word, what do you say and what do you do? 
Black families are role-playing these conversations and these instances with their children, and they're also exposing them to Black role models, for example, to combat negative or lack of representation messages that they're receiving in school and in the media. Racial socialization is linked to improved outcomes like self-esteem, racial identity, African uh, academic achievement, right? So if you tell your kids, you're going to have to raise your hand twice as much to get called on. That's also to say, right, that we value education and academic achievement. And this is the extra work that we have to do to overcome some barriers. Uh, I smiled on this slide. I'm going to pause really briefly to say that all the cartoons that you're seeing right now are not done by me. I'm not a graphic designer by any means. I have kiddos and caregivers who I worked with in focus groups and in individual interviews, and they helped draft and design um, the cartoons and many of the prompts that you guys are going to see on this very slide here. So do know that racial socialization has major themes that caregivers utilize. Racial pride messages are those, like I said, that teach Black history and heritage to combat negative messages and negative experiences. So for example, if a Black kid is reading a history book at school, Black caregivers will oftentimes supplement those history books with other Black history books to um, make up for negative messages in the history books or a lack of messaging or in, even incorrect messaging, right? Racial barrier messages are ones that concretely and tangibly prepare Black youth for barriers and instances of racism and discrimination that they're going to face. So you don't want the first time a Black kid experiences discrimination to be the first time they've ever heard about it. That disrupts their identity. So Black parents prepare Black youth um, for different barriers that they might encounter. So just like the birds and the bees conversation, right? Parents talk to girls about like healthy relationships and how to advocate for yourself and how to write negotiate condom usage, for example. That's to protect against STIs, unhealthy relationships, maladaptive outcomes. So racial barrier messages are much the same. So these are instances of racial stressors that you might encounter, but this is how you prepare for them and how you respond to them and heal from them. I've talked about achievement messages. It's also important to think about extended family involvement and different ways that you as clinicians can engage caregivers, can engage community members, can engage, right, big mama, nana, the candy lady around the corner. Like clients are saying, these are people who are helping to socialize me and they're helping me to navigate stressors that I encounter. Also thinking about spirituality and religion and how clients can benefit from this, but also how we can adapt our uh, relaxation strategies, for example. So mindfulness, are we talking about meditation and mindfulness is prayer and giving thanks, right? So making sure that the language that we use is relevant to the culture of our... And again, racial equality is not to say, right, we're taking a colorblind approach to um, interacting in society, but to say that there is a benefit from celebrating diversity and differences that exist. Kiddos and clients and caregivers have said it's really important to consider, yes, providing that psychoeducation, but talking to them specifically about the conversations and the, the practices that they're engaging in within their family to help deal with these racial stressors. One size does not fit all. Understanding that racial socialization is taking place in families and that there are things that we as clinicians can do 
to facilitate these conversations. I'm going to breeze through the second pillar here. So doing evaluations of already existing evidence-based services. I do evaluations at CAC, so Children's Advocacy Centers, just to see how um, ethnic minority families are engaging in services. And to no surprise, we do see that Black families are missing significantly more forensic interview sessions. They're attending significantly fewer treatment sessions, and they're less likely to graduate treatment. So when we did a qualitative analysis of why um, these caregivers were engaging in services or why they were not engaging in services, we did see that caregivers were saying, if you are providing evidence-based services and trying to target Black youth and Black families, we need to, especially as it pertains to interpersonal and racial trauma, we need to know why you, someone in the system, is contacting my family, period. We need to know why you are referring me for treatment. Is there a suspicion of child abuse and what does that look like? Are you calling me a bad parent? Are you taking my kids away because I spank them, right? So really being informative about treatment referrals so that parents can just come in the door, right? Overcoming instances of mistrust and stigma that they have. They also talk about organizational barriers. So are you offering services? Outside of work hours, do you have evening hours? Are you on the bus line? Are you providing childcare for my other kids while I'm receiving services? Luckily, everyone's providing telehealth now because of coronavirus, but prior to, right, these caregivers were saying, what infrastructure do you have so that we can have telehealth services, for example? Also, they did talk about these interpersonal, so these client barriers that they had that I just alluded to. So discomfort in asking questions, mistrust, stigma, right around interpersonal trauma. They also talked about provider barriers. So how can we as providers, right, make sure that we're more culturally sensitive, make sure that we're practicing cultural humility, make sure that we're identifying ourselves as advocates and overcoming any bias that we might have. You guys are doing a great thing by listening to me talk today. I'm going to breeze through this, but right, taking trainings and workshops that are similar to this to come up with concrete strategies for better engaging your clients are what clients are saying that they want from their practitioners. So very last pillar, the most exciting to me is how do we adapt these already existing evidence-based treatments that we know work, but how do we make them more relevant for our clients? So TFCBT is the one that I began adapting. So it's an empirically supported gold standard treatment for interpersonal trauma. It does improve a range of maladaptive outcomes, um, or negative outcomes for kids and adolescents who have experienced trauma. So I use the ADAPTED model. You guys can read all about it. DeClemente and Wingood, they frequent ABCT. The ADAPTED model has a ton of evidence around how to, in eight sequential stages, adapt already existing evidence-based treatments. So I use those eight stages by getting topical experts. I talked to you about the kiddos who were involved. I involved Esther, Judy, and Cohen, the developers of TFCBT, to make sure that we were staying true to the components of treatment that follow the practice acronym. We're not going to talk about all of the components of practice. We will talk about psychoeducation. Psychoeducation is really important. So all of you who are dealing with kiddos who experience interpersonal trauma, right? It's important to provide psychoeducation so that you can normalize their experiences, right? So you're not the only kid to 
be sexually assaulted or sexually abused. You're not the only kid to witness domestic violence. So you normalize it, you provide statistics on it. And very much the same, we, we go through this process as it pertains to racial stressors. So you provide prevalence of racial stress and trauma. You talk to kiddos about what microaggressions are. You tell them, no, you're not crazy for being upset with your teacher for calling you the wrong name. That's actually a micro-invalidation. So actually labeling what they're experiencing, normalizing their responses. Asking open-ended um, questions, reading a book or an article. These are different strategies that exist. Again, I'm going to share these resources with you guys. Um, but these thought bubbles, again, are not from my mouth, but from the kiddos and the caregivers and actual trauma clinicians that are important to engaging Black families in treatment. So what questions do you have about treatment? What questions or values do you have around therapy, right? So do you think that what happens in the family should stay in the family? And how do I fit into your family? And how do I see myself as an advocate as someone who's here to help your family? What experiences have you had within the system? And how are you receiving me as a white clinician, as a person who might have to call defects, right? Talking to them about when I do call defects, I'm going to call with you in the room. And these are the conversations that we'll have and we'll keep you engaged in the process so that you are making sure that after you have that first session with your family, they come back, right? So psychoeducation is a, lar is a large part of that process. Relaxation is important to emphasize Many of you are already doing deep breathing with your clients. You're already talking about relaxation and mindfulness. Important to keep in mind here, I have an example of PMR. So how can you make PMR culturally relevant for your clients, right? Thinking about ways to change the scripts that you're working on to make it something that's tangible that your clients relate to that they can hold on to. Affect identification. So not only identifying um, our emotions and our feelings around interpersonal stressors, but how do you feel when you experience a racial stressor and how are you responding to that? Cognitive coping is so important. It's very important as it pertains to racial stressors not to invalidate and not to try to restructure our clients' cognitions around the racial stressors that they experience but to validate their experience and to restructure their responses. So we're not restructuring. Maybe they weren't treating you poorly because you're Black. Maybe they weren't calling you unintelligent, right? We are restructuring their responses. So understanding how racial stressors can lead to inaccurate thoughts, right? So you can start thinking about yourself differently if all you are receiving are negative messages. So how do we combat that with more positive messages, right? Validating experiences and building on opposite actions. So racism wants you to be angry. It wants you to grit your teeth. It wants you to think poorly of yourself. So if you do feel angry, how do you smile in the face of your oppressor? And how do you combat racism, not by being beaten down and thinking negatively of yourself, but knowing your strengths and combating it with positive responses, knowing that this is a radical restructuring that a lot of Black people have to undergo. So if we're working twice as hard, how are we taking care of ourselves twice as much? So as a clinician, you are not saying, maybe you need to do better. Maybe you should think about, right, advocating for yourself in this different way. Maybe you should strive for perfectionism. No, I do know that you're 
equally competent, working twice as hard. And that means that now you have to recharge twice as much. You have to restore twice as much. Yes, you are maybe the primary caretaker as a child in your household. As a teenager, you might be the primary caretaker. How can you now unplug and unwind at the end of the day? That's equally important because otherwise at school, you're not paying attention. You're not engaged, right? So how can you validate a client's response without validating the oppressor, right? It is unfair that you have to work twice as hard. However, this is how we resist it. Very briefly, cognitive restructuring. One example that I have that I want to present is if you finish a group project and your teacher acknowledges everyone in your group but you. These are stressors. So our clients come in with stressors every week. They have a cow, right? Some of these cows are going to be race-based. And it's not to restructure your client's experiences. It's not to say, right, maybe your teacher just forgot. Maybe your teacher this. Maybe your teacher that. It's to figure out what your client's initial thought is. I didn't do a good job on this project, and it's a reflection of my performance. How are you feeling? Getting them to identify this. You guys are familiar with the cognitive triangle. So the important part is once you've identified the current cognitive triangle, how do you restructure that? Use psychoeducation to label it as a microaggression or as an individual instance of discrimination or racism, labeling it according to the words that the client has. This often happens when there's only one black person in a group. So asking them questions. What was the composition of your group? What did it look like? What was that process for you? Saying, what have you done? What have you tried? Have you advocated for yourself? They're going to tell you I have, right? I spoke up in class. My teacher didn't see me, didn't recognize or acknowledge me. Talking to your client about the fact that this is reality, getting them to see that you do still have the value of achieving. You do still have the value of academic excellence. You do still know your contributions. So getting them to problem solve and to think, hmm, how can I remind my teacher of my contribution? You're going to have clients that say, I already tried that. So how do you talk to your clients about, okay, was there anyone else in your group who can be an ally for you, who can advocate for you and remind your teacher of, wait, Johnny did pull his work, his weight. This person did contribute, right? So problem solving and empowering your clients to overcome instances of racism that they might encounter. This is one that everyone's familiar with. The kiddos that I work with thought it was so important that, right, you get pulled over by the police. You see this happen on the news. You're feeling anxious. How do you respond? You're acting out of character. You're stressed. Even after the police go, right? How do you normalize that? They see it every day. They see it, if not face-to-face, -face, they certainly see it on the internet. So how do you normalize that? There's heightened race and tension, racial tension. I know how to respond. I can be calm and controlled in this situation. I can put my hands at 10 and 2. I can respond with yes, sir, no, sir. That's the racial socialization. But the, also what we know about relaxation, what we know about assessing for danger and threat is that 10 and 2 might not work nowadays, right? You can still be discriminated against. Police brutality still happens. This world is still unfair. So while we're doing 10 and 2, I promise you my clients have come back. They might not say I did PMR, but they say, Dr. Mesker, I was squeezing my booty cheeks. We got pulled over and I was clenching my fists. That means I was in there doing PMR and I was doing deep breathing and afterwards we were able to calm down. And these, this is what clients say, makes relevant the work that you're doing, right? That makes PMR relevant. That makes cognitive restructuring relevant. I don't wanna feel angry in this instance. I wanna walk away from this situation feeling like I was in control and like I have some sense of peace. 
So for the sake of time, we're going to stop there. I'm going to throw a bunch of resources at you guys again. I want to make you aware of a racial trauma guide that I've developed. It is available on dreishametzker.com slash racial dash trauma dash guide. Uh, Instagram.com slash the empower lab. You can go to UGA.com slash psychology slash the the same racial dash trauma dash guide. I have an article in child maltreatment that goes through practice way slower and gives uh, different strategies. Again, I want to acknowledge um, the people who have funded this work, but in particular, Dean Norton Child Advocacy Center, the Cottage Sexual Assault Center, and the Georgia Center for Child Advocacy as the youth caregivers and clinicians um, definitely helped, particularly with the strategies for culturally adapting practice. And we have a couple minutes. I want to open up for discussion, so I will stop. Could you say more about the youth who like did the thought bubbles and like did the animations? Just like, it sounds like you have like an advisory board. We'd love to hear about that. Yeah, we do. Um, So it was a very long process. So we started off with focus groups, but the youth were starting to give like really, really personal testimonies and it started becoming slightly therapeutic. So then we switched to key informant interviews. And then we went back out larger to an advisory board. So it's been an iterative process in that we started kind of broad and then gotten more um, refined. But yes, I have an advisory board. And then I just have a bunch of volunteers and people who say I'm really interested in this work. So whenever I do um, consent forms for research, we ask that one question, are you willing to be contacted for future research? And the ones who say, yeah, literally want to be contacted. So one of them really good at like social media and graphic design and anything that the other kiddos have sketched up. Like I was on paint, like, can you make this look better for us? And we actually submitted a DP2 grant together. So a $1.5 million grant we finally submitted. And hopefully we'll get some funding to where I'll be able to pay some of these people that I've been working with. But it has been very much so like stemming from research and then just becoming a project of love. Like when you go to my website, you'll see like the even within UGA, our clinical program developed a task force only around racial stress and trauma. So it's not just me, it's a bunch of people who have come together to make more standardized and more available these practices that we think and that the Black kiddos are saying are what's helping them stay more engaged in in, in treatment. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I definitely learned a lot. And one thing I really appreciate from your work, Dr. Metzger, is giving us a framework to understand when there are these ongoing stressors, how to handle that, because I think that's very different than a lot of the traditional training for trauma-focused work. Um, and so thank you for all of, all of your resources and efforts in helping us have this conversation. That last voice you heard was Michelle, our SIG president and the organizer of our annual meeting. This talk was made possible by CMIV SIG Connections. It's one of the many benefits of being part of the SIG. If you aren't a member yet, you can be. Check out our website for more information, linked on our Twitter and in our newsletter, which you can now find online. If you would like to be interviewed or nominate someone else to be interviewed for a mini podcast or a future newsletter, get in touch with us via our website. A few of the resources Dr. Metzger shared with us are linked in the show notes, the Empower Lab's webpage, and her personal website. Be sure to follow the Empower Lab on Instagram, and that's all for now.
Well, I want to thank you guys for having me. Like I said, this is a very strange world. I'm going to come. I'm going to join. I'm going to pay the dues and drop in. 